Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And this is found on page 909, um, and that's in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that one. That's our gift to you. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, and we are so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and uh, I'm really excited to be starting this journey with you through the book of Acts. This is going to be a series that we're in together for a good part of uh, this coming year, and I'm excited to explore this really critical, uh, important book of the Bible uh, together with you. So as we prepare to embark on studying this book here with Acts chapter 1, uh, I'd like to do as we do each week, which is to begin this time in, uh, in prayer and simply asking that God would be speaking to us, um, that we would hear from him. Ultimately, you haven't come to hear from me, you've come to hear from him. And so we pray that as we study his word this morning, that we all, me myself included, would hear afresh what God is speaking to each and every one of us. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who speaks, that you've spoken the world into existence, uh, that you have spoken supremely in Jesus, who you call the word, and that you continue to speak to us through the word, the holy scriptures. We pray that we would be attentive and attuned to your voice now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite film directors is Christopher Nolan, and, and I still haven't seen Dunkirk yet. I know it, it just got some Oscar nominations this last week, and I'm really excited to, to see it, but haven't seen it yet. But Inception and Interstellar are some of my all-time favorite films, as well as, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy is fantastic. And in the first film, Batman Begins, of that trilogy, is a masterful example of sort of the, the film genre of the origin story. If you've been into superhero stuff at all, you know that, that there's always this kind of category of origin story where you find out where did this hero come from? How did they get their powers? And I think that the, the film Batman Begins is one of the best examples of that origin story. Uh, the, the experts at Wikipedia uh, define, kind of explain an origin story this way. They say it's an account or a backstory revealing how a character or a group of people became the the hero or the villain in the story. It adds to the overall narrative, the context of the story, and in particular, it gives you sort of reasons to view into their intentions and why they do what they do. Well, the book of Acts is our origin story as the church. 
This is our origin story. Why, why is the church here? What is it about? How did it get here? Where did it come from? You see, origins matter. History matters because it gives us such a, a view, a, a window into who we are, our identity. It's, it's why we're fascinated by genealogy. We love kind of finding out about who are our ancestors? Where did they come from? It's why if you go to see a counselor to talk about your marriage or your family or your own, just your life, what's going on in your life, where do they start? They want to know about your family of origin because it shapes so much of who you are. Origins matter. Why do we gather each week? This is our origin story. Why do we come together as a church every week? Why do we gather? Um, what does what we do here on Sunday have to do with the rest of the week? What does it have to do with Monday? Uh, what are we supposed to be doing as the church, as an organization, as a living organism? These are some of the questions that the book of Acts will help us to answer. Now, you may be here this morning and you would say, you know, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, Bill. I'm, I'm here with a friend or uh, my spouse invited me to come. But I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a Christian. In fact, I'm pretty skeptical of the church. Or maybe you're here this morning and you would have considered yourself a Christian at one time, but maybe you were really deeply hurt by the church. And again, you're, you're here this morning because someone invited you, or your parents made you come. And I just want to say to you, if that's where you're at, that it may be hard for you to imagine being a part of a church again. Maybe hard for you to consider becoming a part of a church at all. And, and I want to just acknowledge, of course, there are good reasons to be skeptical of the church. People operating under the banner of the church, operating in the name of the church, have committed all kinds of awful things. We know this from history. We know this happens. Abuse, deception, oppression. But when you're evaluating a system of thought or a group or an organization or a movement— if you want to be fair in your evaluation, you have to look at not only what are sort of the dark sides of this thing, but, but what are the best examples of this? The people who represent the most faithful form of that movement or worldview. You know, so, for example, if you were considering the civil rights movement in the United States, if you were skeptical of that movement, of course you could point to examples of, of civil rights people or people who acted in the name of the civil rights movement who used violence or, or committed crimes doing that. But we'd say, no, no, well, that's not a fair way. You can't condemn the whole civil rights movement because a few people used violence. No, we look at, at the, the best examples of that, the Martin Luther Kings, the Rosa Parks, the people who are the, the, the best exemplars of that movement. And the same is true of the church. Yes, there have been terrible things done in the name of the church and by those associated with us. No, no one would deny that. And yet the church also started the world's first hospitals it started the first orphanages uh, in universities. It cared for unwanted and abandoned infants in, in Rome. It, it started the first homeless shelters. It, it advocated for and successfully ended the slave trade and slavery around the, the world and continues to fight against modern-day slavery today. And it continues to be a leading force in all of those things today around the world. It's not perfect. Christ's community is not perfect. No church is perfect. And yet there continues to be amazing things that are happening in and through the local church. 
And Jesus promised that he would build his church. He promised that he would build his church. And you and I, sitting here today, are a fulfillment of that promise. But how did we get here? How do we get from, from first century Jerusalem, which we're reading about, which we heard right about here, to 21st century Kansas City? How did we, how did we get there? Again, we find the beginning of an answer to that question in the book of Acts. And in the coming months, we're going to be looking at this book together. And Acts is it's such a unique book in the Bible. It's the, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. So um, the Bible is divided up into two big sections. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is really sort of the origin story of, of, the whole, of the whole world, of us. It tells the story of the world that God has made. And also, it tells the story of how this world went wrong. And it begins telling the story as well of how God is initiating, how he's beginning a plan of rescue, of redemption, of restoration. And he begins this plan by selecting at first one family, Abraham's family. And and it's so kind of fuzzy at the beginning, but, but God makes a promise to Abraham that somehow, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bring wholeness and flourishing to everyone, everywhere, all over the world. But when you come to the end of the Old Testament, there's so many promises that, that are left yet unfulfilled. Uh, there's so much brokenness that still remains. And the Old Testament ends with, with God's silence. And then you come to the pages of the New Testament. And, and what you find in the New Testament is it begins with four accounts of the life of this person named Jesus. Those accounts we know as as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus sees himself in the Gospels as the fulfillment of every promise and expectation of the Old Testament. In fact, he's a a great, 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 many times great over grandson of Abraham. Fully God, fully human. And then you have the book of Acts. Acts. And the book of Acts, it forms a sort of bridge. It's a bridging book in the Bible. It connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. It connects the Jewish people, Abraham's family, to every other family on earth, Jews and Gentiles. It connects Jesus and the church. And it connects the early church to our church. Uh, By the way, that's a a picture of the Navajo Bridge over Marvel Canyon on US 89A in, in Arizona. It's one of the most incredible, uh, incredibly beautiful drives that we've ever done as a family. So just wanted to let you in on that. It's a gorgeous picture of a bridge. So if I was going to give you an image of a bridge, I thought I'd give you one that I personally love so much um, over Marvel Canyon. Uh, but can you imagine if we didn't have the Book of Acts? It, it would be like not having The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars trilogy, right? So you, you would open up to... Return of the Jedi, and you're all of a sudden asking, well, why is Han Solo frozen in carbonite? What happened to Luke's hand? Why, why does he have this robot hand? And, and who in a galaxy far, far away is this green Yoda who can use a lightsaber? Right? You'd be missing these vital parts because Empire Strikes Back forms this bridge between a new hope and the return of the Jedi. In the same way, Acts, it forms a vital bridge in Scripture. A vital bridge in our story, in your story, in the story of the local church. And at its core, we learn today that the church is sent. The church is sent, that we have been sent. 
You see, that's how the book of Acts begins. Jesus had been crucified, and Jesus had died. Like, really died. Like, not like mostly dead. Like, dead, dead. Jesus was dead. He was buried in a tomb, sealed up. And then, this is how every one of the Gospels ends, and then Jesus rose from the dead. But since dead people don't come back to life, everybody knows this, right? When people die, they stay dead. And, And that's true whether you lived in the first century or the 21st century. People in the first century were no more likely to believe in a resurrection from the dead than you and I are today. In fact, if anything, people in the first century had a lot more contact on a regular basis with death than we do. They knew a dead body when they saw one, and they knew dead people don't come back to life. And so when Jesus does rise from the dead, it takes some convincing, even to the people who have been closest with him, to convince them that he is truly risen from the dead because we all know dead people don't rise. And you get this in the very first part of Acts. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Luke, the author of the book, begins like this. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, two things, let's just pause right there before we read any further. First book is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is writing a two-volume work. Luke is the first volume. Acts is the second volume. Theophilus, this guy he mentions here, uh, is probably the person who helped to fund Luke's work. He's probably a patron So Luke is writing this book for Theophilus. So in the first book of Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implication, Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, note this, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? Luke, the author of Acts, he, wrote the, he points out that Jesus presented himself alive, risen from the dead, but by many proofs. Because again, people in the first century are no more naive about death than we are in the 21st century. They knew a dead body when they saw one. They knew that dead people don't come back to life. And yet here we have Jesus doing that. And it's precisely because they knew that dead people don't come back to life that Jesus has to prove to them that he's alive. And notice how Luke begins. He writes this person called Theophilus. And what he claims to be doing is he's writing history. Luke is recording eyewitness events. It's part of the reason that you end up with so many recorded names in the Gospels and in Acts. Why do the gospel writers, why do Acts, Luke, why do they include so many names? Because they're saying these are people who are eyewitnesses. You can go talk to them. This is their testimony. And he points out that he recorded in this first narrative all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication then is that Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the church. It's part of the reason that we have so many miracle accounts in Acts, that Jesus is working through his followers to prove that he is alive that he's continuing his work. Again, Acts is not once upon a time. It doesn't begin with long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instead, Acts is making the claim to be theologically interpreted history. Theologically interpreted history. And which, by the way, that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we read the book of Acts. 
is the genre, the type of literature it is. Acts is history at its most basic kind of genre level. It's a description of what happened in the past, which means it isn't primarily a picture of exactly what the church should look like today. And if we forget this, we can set ourselves up for disillusionment or unrealistic expectations about how God might be at work in the church today. So what we find in Acts is patterns and principles more than direct prescription for us today. We find patterns and principles for how the church is to look, but not an exact prescription, not an exact description of everything that's supposed to be doing in the church today. And what we find is that the overwhelming principle that we find in the book of Acts is that we are sent. That we're sent as witnesses. Sent as witnesses. Now, if you grew up around the church, uh, you may have some baggage with the, the language of witnesses in the context of the church or, or being a witness or witnessing in the context of the church. Um, it may call to mind this kind of picture of like uh, handing out little pamphlets or tracts or, or knocking on people's doors, going door to door. But Jesus has something much more in mind here when he declares that his disciples will be his witnesses. What he means is that like witnesses in a courtroom, they will give eyewitness testimony about Jesus, about his teaching, about his death and his resurrection. You see, Christians aren't sent to spread their religion. They, they aren't sent to get people to follow a set of rules. They, they aren't called to share, we aren't called to share our beliefs or our opinions or platitudes. Christians are sent as witnesses with news about something that has happened in time and space. Supremely, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Why am I convinced that that actually happened? Why should you be convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead? There's a lot that could go into that. There's a couple of great books uh, by uh, N.T. Wright on that, if you want to dive in. He's probably the best person. Uh, one of them is called Surprised by Hope. The other one's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. One's like 300 pages of one. One's like 900 pages. Maybe start with a shorter one. If you really want to go deep, you can go to the other one. But let me just tell you quickly, if I had to tell someone, why really quickly, what are some reasons that I believe that Jesus has actually risen from the dead? Well, first, you have the phenomenon, this piece of evidence of the empty tomb. Then you have people claiming to have seen Jesus alive. So those are two pieces. And then there's a third piece. You, you don't have a body produced as evidence to the contrary. Now, if you only had one or two or three of those, two of those pieces of information, you, you might be able to sort it out. But it's the three pieces of those together. Empty tomb, claims of seeing Jesus alive, no body, that those three things together are a big part of this, right? Because if you only had the empty tomb, but you didn't have anyone reporting Jesus being alive... And you say, okay, well, they just got the wrong tomb. Someone took the body. We just don't have the body. Now, if you only had claims of people seeing Jesus alive, that's pretty easy to disclaim. You just go find the body and say, actually, no, he's still dead. Here's, here's the body. 
But what we have in the New Testament and all the documents from this time is that you don't have a body being produced. You do have an empty tomb, and you have many eyewitness accounts of Jesus presenting himself alive. That's one piece. How do you account for all of those three? Jesus, no dead body, empty tomb, eyewitness accounts of him being alive. Second thing, Jesus' followers, after he dies, they are afraid, they're terrified, they're cowering. And then something happens that they become bold. We're going to watch this in the book of Acts. Something happens that they become bold, proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they stake their lives. I mean, they are going to die for this. And that didn't happen because of some light inspiration or, or some motivational, helpful teaching. No, something happened that dramatically transformed them. Something like a resurrection. And moreover, and this is, this is actually maybe one of the most convincing pieces to me, all of these 12 disciples, all of early, Jesus' early followers, were devout Jewish people who would not worship anyone but the one true God of Israel. They had gotten that right. They would not worship a human being. And all of a sudden, you now have these devout Jewish people changing the day of worship from, from Saturday to Sunday, and they're worshiping a human being, fully God, fully man. Something dramatic would have to have to taken place for that kind of a shift in generation after generation of worship practice. And you and I are here today. We are evidence that something happened 2,000 years ago. Something happened that allowed this thing to, to flourish and spread to the point of us being here thousands of miles away, different language, different culture, worshiping Jesus. So we're sent as witnesses of that thing that happened. We aren't sent to share our beliefs or opinions. We're sent to share knowledge about something that has happened. The University of Southern California, USC philosopher Dallas Willard, whose specialty was in the area of knowledge, knowing the philosophical discipline of epistemology, um, Lewis writes this about what it means to be a witness. This is so key. It's a little longer. It'll be on the screen. Just follow along. He says, we should note, Willard says, that, we, that witnesses are first of all those who know something. We should note that witnesses are first of all those who know something. They don't just believe something. And he goes on and says, if you have knowledge on any matter of great importance to human beings, it is your duty to make that knowledge available to others. If you know the house is on fire, you must share that knowledge with others. If you know where the bargains are, you tell your friends. If you know how to stop global warming or cure cancer, you have a duty to share that knowledge. Not so of your mere opinions, feelings, or decisions about such matters. Witnesses know something. And Luke is writing the book of Acts that we might become convinced, that we might come to have knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus and then join in with those who are bearing witness to that knowledge, bearing witness to a new reality breaking into the world, giving testimony in word and deed, to what has happened to the news of an empty tomb and its implications for all of life and for every one. 
But the disciples, in the first moment, they, they don't get the idea of for everyone just yet. And Luke records for us here in Acts chapter 1, one of the final moments that the disciples have with Jesus before he ascends into heaven. Uh, Jesus has been alive from the dead for 40 days. He's been appearing to them, presenting himself alive with many proofs. We've been talking about that. And now the disciples, they want to know what's next. Is Jesus going to overthrow Rome and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem and over all the world? I mean, it seems like at this point that Jesus would be in a pretty good position to do that. He's kind of, they've watched him do this kind of Terminator thing. You can't kill him. This is a great guy to lead a revolt. You, you, you can't keep him down. He doesn't die. Jesus, are you, are you going to restore the kingdom now? That's what they want to know. But Jesus has something else in mind. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, that's the disciples, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You're unstoppable. Are you going to do this now? And they've asked this question before, and Jesus says the same thing to him that he always says when they ask about when he's going to do this. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. That's not for you to know, but there is something for you to do. Verse 8. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is kind of a geographically concentric circles. Jerusalem and then you have Judea and Samaria, the region around that, and then ultimately to the ends, ends of the world. And Jesus reminds them again, every time they've asked about this, the time is not for you to know but there is something for you to do. Be my witnesses. And in fact, that little phrase that Jesus goes on to say, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the that's the outline of the book of Acts. We're going to see that as we go through. The book of Acts records what they do in Jerusalem, then how they go to Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth. That's how the book of Acts is, is arranged. It's how it's set up. It's how Luke has organized it. And Jesus sends his disciples to everyone. To everyone. Not just to Israel, It's not just about setting up an ethnic kingdom for Israel. They're sent to everyone. We're sent to everyone. Oftentimes the the church can be perceived as as exclusive. At times it it actually has been exclusive. But in Jesus' design, the church is meant to be the most inclusive organization on the planet. And we're going to see this all through the book of Acts. No one is left out. It's for men and for women. By the way, keep your eye out for this as you read Acts. That women are empowered in the book of Acts, in the local church, in ways that they have never been empowered before in that culture and society. It's for the rich and for the poor. It's for white collar and blue collar. Democrats and Republicans. Progressives and conservatives. It's for people of every race, ethnic group, language, and background. I was thinking this week, I wonder what Jesus, how he would have phrased that commission. He wouldn't, if he were speaking to us today, you know, he wouldn't say Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. How would he say that to people in Brookside? How would he say that to us? Just imagining here, but maybe he'd say, you are to be my witnesses to the uneducated and the poor, the immigrant and the refugee, blue collar and white collar, male and female, Democrat and Republican, Muslims and atheists, and nominally religious. Think of any group of people church, us, we are sent to them. No one is excluded. How often, 
probably once a week, I have to repent of the thought that, well, that person or that group, they would never come to love and follow Jesus. They're just, their worldview is too different. They're too opposed to it. They, they wouldn't believe it. And I have to remember, but Bill, you wouldn't have believed it unless, unless God did something radical in your life. We're sent to everyone. And the good news is that we're not sent alone. We're not sent alone, which may seem a little bit surprising at first in light of where we began this message with what Callan read for us. He began, you know, Callan read until verse 9, Jesus is, is taken up into the cloud. They're just kind of left there standing in the sky. It's like Jesus seems like he's gone. It doesn't seem like we're sent with someone. It seems like we are being sent alone. But notice carefully what the text says. It doesn't say Jesus is, is just taken away from them, but he's taken away from their sight. It's taken out of their sight. Look at verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this idea of a cloud hiding Jesus from their sight is drawing on imagery from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel about the Son of Man, this messianic figure who would, who would uh, come on the clouds. And again, it's important to remember here, too, that Jesus isn't being sort of launched into outer space. There's a, an atheist philosopher who calls this the launching of our Lord, which I think is actually really kind of clever. He meant it as an insult. But Jesus isn't being launched into outer space as though, like, heaven is some place that's geographically located within the material universe. That's it's a misreading of the text. But rather, Jesus is being translated from earth into heaven. Earth is human space, heaven is God's space. The whole goal of this project is that God's space and human space would eventually overlap. They overlapped in the person of Jesus. They now overlap in the, with the Holy Spirit in the church. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is that these things would merge together one day. So Jesus hasn't been shot out into outer space somewhere, just to be clear. Jesus is still with them but he's hidden from their sight. We are not sent alone. We are sent with Jesus. That's what the ascension means for us. We, we confess that in the creed this morning, that we believe he's ascended into heaven. What does the ascension mean for us? Well, it means that, that Jesus is still with us. He's with us, though, reigning on the throne as the king of the universe. It means that he's present with us now by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see a lot more about that next week. It also means that he is our advocate. You read the book of Hebrews, another book of the New Testament, you get this picture all over the place. Jesus is our advocate. He's defending us from all the accusations that the enemy, the Satan, Satan, that language means the accuser, is putting against us. In Jesus, you have the best lawyer who has ever lived. When the thoughts begin to enter your mind that you're not good enough, that, that you, when you feel shame or guilt for things that have happened to you, things that you've done to other people, mistakes you've made in the past, when you feel like you're deserving of condemnation and exclusion, if you have come to love and trust Jesus, he defends you against every accusation that you or anyone else can put against you. He died for you. 
He loves you. He loves you with a love that cannot be done, undone or lost. And we are sent with Jesus in his love. Again, remember how Luke begins this book. He says, I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do and teach. And in this book is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Jesus' ministry hasn't ended just because he's ascended. It's continuing. And we actually see that right here in Acts chapter 1. Um, if you keep reading down in verse 12, you see that the disciples, they actually obey Jesus. This is a bit shocking if you read the Gospels. You know, they don't always obey Jesus, but they, they obey Jesus. They do what Jesus said. They go to Jerusalem and they wait. In verse 14, they pray to him. They're still speaking with Jesus. They're praying to him now. And then in verses 15 through 26, Luke records how they replace the disciple Judas, who had betrayed Jesus. So Judas was one of the twelve. He had betrayed Jesus to the Jews, and he ends up committing suicide. And they want to replace this to bring the number back to twelve. And in these verses, Luke records how that happens. What I want to point out, we don't have time to look at that story in detail, but I want you to look at verses 23 and 24 in particular. Because there's two people who are put forward as choices to replace Judas. And the disciples see Jesus as the one who's going to make the decision. He's still active. He's still with them. Look at verses 23 and 24 in chapter 1. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. The guy has three names. That's not confusing at all, right? It's actually only two people here. Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Judas, and Matthias. So Joseph and Matthias. These are the two choices. And notice what they do. And they prayed and said, they're speaking to Jesus, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Jesus is ascended, but he is still active. He is still with them, doing and teaching. Jesus is still at work here and now with us. So what's next? Two questions. First, where is God sending us as a church, as the Brookside Campus Congregation of Christ Community? Where is he sending us? What is he sending us to do in this little collection of neighborhoods that are gathered around this building here in Brookside? What is his commission to us? It's what we've been looking at. We're sent. We're sent as witnesses to something that has happened. We're sent to Missouri and to Kansas, to Mission Hills and to Mannheim Park. We're, we're sent to the east of truth and the west of truth. And, and this is still happening. The Acts, the book of Acts, it's still happening. It isn't over. We're a part of it. It's why a little group of people came together 29 years ago to, to start Christ's community. Uh, it's why as a church that we are multi-site. It's why we partner with organizations and leaders both in Kansas City and around the world to start new churches who will multiply disciples, who will be witnesses with Jesus to everyone, everywhere. That's where we're being sent. Second, where is God sending you? Because he has sent you, he is sending you. And again, because the church, Sunday morning church, it, it, this, is not, this is not the primary thing. Church is not primarily about Sunday. Church is about getting ready for Monday. 
Uh, Sunday is not the destination point in your week. It's the departure point for your week. We're not working all week to just get to Sunday. No, Sunday is the place where we're sent from. We gather here on Sunday so that we can be sent into the world. We're gathered to, we gather to be reminded of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus that we bear witness to as we go from this place to our neighborhoods, our places of work, our classrooms, our home. This is not the destination. This is the departure point. And the incredible good news is that because Jesus is with us, nothing can stop what he has started and what he will build. Jesus gives us two promises in the book of Matthew. The first one is in Matthew 16. Jesus promises, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell are going to stop what I'm going to build. That's an incredible promise that we can cling to as the church. Jesus has promised he's building this thing. It's not on any one of us. He's promised to do it. We are just following him in this work. And second, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he promises, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. I'm going to build it, and I'm going to be with you as it's being built. Being a witness to what happened, being a witness to the resurrection of Jesus is never going to be easy. It's always going to be incredibly difficult. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. It's always going to be hard. But Jesus has promised that we will be able to do it because he is with us. Church, we are sent as witnesses to everyone with our risen and reigning King who is ever-present with us. Let's pray to him now and ask for his presence to empower us to do this. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, reigning King, we pray to you now in the power of the Holy Spirit who you have given to us and ask that you would give us the courage and the strength that we need to be your witnesses. Would we find great joy in the midst of bearing witness to the greatest news that the world has ever known, that Jesus is alive, that he has risen from the dead? It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.